We're going to be in John 9 this morning, which is not what your bulletin says. When I was in uh, Africa, I forgot what I was supposed to preach on. I got it mixed up. Sorry. Uh, So I was supposed to talk about Nicodemus, which is uh, not what you're getting today. Um, We're going through VBS stories. So several weeks ago, it was Zacchaeus. That's day one. That's what we talk about tomorrow. The next day was the woman at the well. Day three is Nicodemus. Day four is John 9 with the healing of the blind man. So, sorry. But here we are. We're in John 9. And... uh, I'll offer you this as an opening, uh, maybe a thought. Whenever I think you travel to a place where there's a fair amount of poverty, the, the disparity makes a pretty big impact on you. Questions like, why was I born in America? <laughs> Those surface. Uh, questions about um, is the material comfort that I experience, is it really better? Because you see things that exist uh, in industrious though impoverished communities that are of real value that leave me wanting. They're, they're, uh, in, in the case of where we were, there's a very strong sense of uh, there's more joy than there is here. I don't mean here, but I mean in in the States. There's more community. There's a greater sense of safety, I felt, when you're in their village. Um, The rules, even though I don't know them, I can intuitively feel that uh, the rules exist and the community lives and thrives in them. and yet there, there's poverty. And so you get all these questions, like we have so much uh, material wealth. Um, and you see that disparity and questions of fairness and why God would do things shows up. And then you see other things that are largely missing in our American context. And, and then you visit with them and they want to come to America because then their problems will go away. Uh, the American dream is still strongly, uh, exists very strongly outside of America, at least. The hope of America. And and yet we know intuitively as we're visiting with them, like you may not get what you think you're going to get. <clears throat> Life is unfair. In some uh, inexplicable ways, there's just disparity. There's disparity between me and you. All of us had different starting points, and we're going to have different ending points. And if we were to lay it out on the table, it wouldn't balance very well. Some would come away thinking they're winners and were, in fact, losers, and others would feel that they marked pretty low and yet were full of grace. But we, it's difficult for us to judge fairness, isn't it? It's just different. We, we know that God is full of grace, but life is not fair. And this morning, this story has a little bit to do with what does, what do our circumstances say about God's opinion of us? What do our 
our estimation of our setting and our circumstances, what does that say about God's opinion of us? That's kind of at the heart of some of the questions you're going to hear. Now, I'm going to try to tell you the story because we've been working on storytelling. Uh, it's, it's a very effective way of sharing the gospel among the people who are non-literate and yet very oral. And uh, so I'm, I'm working on the discipline. Which I believe it's effective in vacation Bible school too. If you can tell the story, then you know the story. And uh, people like to hear a story told more than they like to hear a story read. So anyway, I'm going to tell you, at least tell the first section of it. So beginning in in the ninth chapter, uh, here's the story of Christ. Christ comes to an area and he sees a man who was born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, this man here, is he blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus answers them, it's not because of this man's sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And Jesus goes on to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day, because night is coming when we can do no work. But as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And having said that, he bent down and he spit into the ground and he made mud with his saliva. He took that mud and he anointed the man's eyes. And he said to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And the man went and he washed. And he came back seeing. Now the neighbors who knew this man uh, weren't sure what to think. They weren't sure if it was him or not. Some said it was him. This is the man. And others said it looks like him, but it can't be him. And yet the man himself said repeatedly, it's me. (laughs) It's me. And so they said to them, how is it that you gained your sight? And he said, the man Jesus anointed my eyes with mud and told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I washed and I came back and I regained my sight. And they said, where is this man? And he said, I don't know. So the neighbors brought the man, the beggar, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And as it turned out, the day that Jesus had healed the man was the Sabbath. So we'll stop there. Um, Because the story begins with a pretty important question. The disciples see this man who's born blind, and they immediately assume that he is blind because of sin. Sin somewhere inside of the family. I mean, for them, this is a little bit of a theological mystery that they're allowed. You notice they've never asked this before to others. But in the case of someone who's born this way, it creates a little bit more of a theological mystery. And this is the only account in the Gospels, by the way, of Christ healing somebody who was born with a malady. And so they want to know, I mean, there's the curiousness of, if sin's at work, is it his parents' sin? Or is there something that he did? Because he was born that way. Among the Jews at the time, there was a very strong belief in the correlation 
of works and your circumstances. You see this in the story of Job, where Job has, is an affliction, and all of Job's friends are convinced, if we could just uncover your unrighteousness, Job, we could get you out of this. Let's be honest. Just tell us what it is you did. We're your friends. That's the story of Job, is Job, Job who is righteous, dealing with this, this understanding, this cultural appreciation for if something bad has happened to you, it's because you did something wrong. And while it is a certainly um, a tenet of, of, of Judaism at the time, it's also a soft tenet, I would say, of worldwide religion. The kind of religion that just fills the gaps all across the world. People assume if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. Some call it karma, right? The world has it. The world has it all over. Do good things and it'll go well. If you put your hand, and it's partly true, you put your hand on a stove, it burns. Put your finger in a socket, you get shocked. The wages of sin is death. So there's some partial truth to it. But is it exactly true? Is it entirely true? You know, we've seen exceptions. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, doesn't it? The prophets write and the psalmists write, why do the wicked prosper? Job is an exception. Nonetheless, it's sort of a corollary. People assume if, if uh, there's something in us that assumes that if we're suffering, we begin to search ourselves. What did I do wrong? By the way, there's kind of a, a corollary to this, which, me, which is if things are going well, good, you're probably doing good. Hmm. Good things happen to good people. We assume that the well-dressed and the well-housed and the well-financed and the well-educated are better, I don't know, more approved. I mean, I try to be, I try to be holy and I, I find the very easy ability of looking down on people who are in bad circumstances. I go, well, they're down there because of bad decisions. And I can say it with unbelievable callousness. As though I'm where I am because of my great decisions. I think Jesus rejects this. Now, there's partial truth in it. I'm, I, I'm not trying to... The reality is, right, the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. That there is a sort of wholeness that follows after goodness, and there's a sort of death that follows after evil. I, I mean, those, that, that partial... But the ability for you and me to split the atom and to distinguish 
when someone's circumstances are bad, what part per million was them versus what part per million was their forefathers or their situation or their nature or their nurture or their DNA or their chemical reactions or the season or their educational system or whatever it is. You and I, it's like calling the weather to diagnose causation. There's a basic correlation, but you and I can't pull out causation. And at any rate, Jesus sort of walks past the question. To the disciples, this is sort of a conundrum. To Jesus, this is an opportunity. Jesus sort of walks through the question and says, it's neither of those. But he's here so that the glory of God might be displayed. The works of God might be displayed through him. God doesn't seem to be as caught up in how we got here as he is in where is he going to take us. God is not surprised at your sinfulness. God's not surprised at your advantages or your disadvantages. What God wants is people who are humble and need him. And he works through them. The Lord doesn't seem to be overly wrapped around the axle on who is more sinful than who else. Who's done more wrong? Clearly, the, Christ said, right, the first week of the series, I, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. What did Jesus say last week to the woman at the well who had a very adulterous life? He said, if you would asked me, I would have given you water. And you never thirsted again. Christ came to save. He didn't come to decide who's better. He came to save us. I think many people in the world feel separated from the Lord because of their circumstances, because they allow this tenet of if you're in a bad spot, you probably did something bad. Or, or if you're in a bad spot, you're less worthy versus people who are are in good spot. And I think a lot of people miss the Lord for this on both sides of that coin. The people who are in a life of disadvantaged circumstances, whether they're unattractive or unintelligent or caught in sin or have an ignoble background or from a broken family, you name it, right? All of those sorts of things. I think there's a spirit of unworthiness that creeps in. There's a kind of a voice of, you're here because you deserve it rather than Christ came to save you. Likewise, on the other side of the coin, the people living on the high side of the tenant have no need of a savior because they're just fine. What do your circumstances say about God's opinion of you? I think Jesus would say, they don't. We need him. I think many people are separated from the Lord from this. And the story is for them. The story is for you if you're here. If you're here and you think very little about yourself, you're reading a story where Christ is going to someone who is a beggar and thought of by everyone else as deserving of it in some mysterious way, and he's healing them so that the glory of the Lord might shine through.
I was sharing last night or yesterday with my wife, I was talking about this, uh, we were talking about this with this passage. She, she knows so much of the Bible. And so she said, oh yes, yeah, one of my favorite stories. So we're visiting about it, and, and she said I could share this with you. She shared this with me. She said when I was, well, I knew this part, but when my wife was young, very young, she was very, very sick. She had cancer, three, four, five-year-old. And uh, this thought actually only returned to her a few months ago. It had been gone for many, many years, many decades, but it returned back to her. She remembers wondering what she did. What did she do wrong that she had cancer? And she said to me, she said, I remember when I figured it out. She said, my mom told me not to swallow my toothpaste. But I swallowed my toothpaste. And she went, I figured I had cancer because I swallowed my toothpaste. This tenant is at work. Do you think this week, if we have 178 kids in this building, there's one kid one kid who feels far away from God because of their circumstances? Do you think there might be one kid here who, because their parents are getting divorced, is blaming themselves? Or one kid here because their shoes don't look like everyone else's or thinking that God looks less upon them? Do you think it's possible that this week there might be that kid? The story is for them. The story, God meets people where people are. And he uses those people to show his glory. Here's the other side of the coin. and I, I guess we'll just read it. It's a long reading. We have time. So I got us all the way up to the 14th verse. It happened to be the Sabbath. That's the hinge of this whole thing. Okay. This is kind of an epic story. It actually spills into the 10th chapter, and we actually fell out of the 8th chapter. It's a long sort of theme. Turns out it's the Sabbath. Now, let me just share a little bit. The Sabbath, in in order for the Jews to be obedient to the Lord about honoring the Sabbath, they built many, many laws and rules of their own upon it. Healing on the Sabbath was strictly forbidden. In particular, healing with your spit and anointing the eyes. Okay, there's actually like, and by the way, double whammy. Okay, so there's a problem here. And before we kind of look down on them, let's stand with them. There's actually a legitimate problem here. Okay, Jesus broke the rules. What do we do with him? Okay, that's kind of where we are in verse 14. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. I find it very interesting, by the way, that they're seeking the counsel of, of the beggar. It's brilliant. Brilliant. It's wonderful. 
The Jews do not believe that he had been blind. Now, let me explain a little bit why they didn't believe it, right? He can't be of God. In their minds, he can't possibly be of God because he broke the rule. He broke God's law in their mind. You can't be a lawbreaker and have the power of God. So they assume something else happened. This is a false teacher and a false healing. They're trying to get to the bottom of it. Because a man is not above the law. To be above the law, you'd have to be something more. And they're not entertaining that. So they go to his parents, 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they call him in again, okay? And they say this phrase in 24 to him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. That's sort of like tell the truth. Give glory to God is like, tell us the truth, okay? We know this man's a sinner. The man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? I mean, it's snarky. It's good, <laughs> right? You should see the power in this, this blind man. I mean, he's standing up. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is, ama- this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Listen to their response. It reminds you of how this whole conversation started. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they excommunicated him. A few more verses for a second. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Which, by the way, what a beautiful thing to say to someone who's just regained his sight. Imagine one of the first things you see with your eyes in your life is the Savior. That might be true for us. 
I mean, God might really open our eyes one day and we'll see fresh and new who he really is. So he says, you're looking at him. He said in 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Now, I want to stop there because the man, there's this progression in the man's life that we should know, okay? He didn't know who Jesus was from the very beginning. It's actually an unsolicited healing. The man didn't cry out, heal me, rabbi. None of that. If you read the beginning of the story, this man is a curiosity to the disciples. I don't even know if this man heard the exchange about his sin. Jesus decides in an unsolicited way to create this event that we're in the middle of right now. He walks over to this man. He rubs mud on him. But the man never asked for it. And the man didn't even know. He said the, the beginning phrase was, this man named Jesus put this on my eyes and told me to go wash. That was his first kind of comment. The second comment, when the Pharisees ask him, who is he? He says, he's a prophet. Then in the second interview with the Pharisees, now you find him defending him. It's amazing you would say this. Never before in the history of all creation has anyone been healed who was born blind. Surely he's from God, and by the very end, he's worshiping him as Lord and Savior. Do you you see that picture? That growing spiritual sight, okay? This isn't visual sight. This is growing insight of the personhood of Christ. Meanwhile, the opposite is happening with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have perfect, clear visual sight as to what happened. They have categorical evidence from the neighbors, from the parents, from the subject in particular, all testifying before them. They have data. They have all the forensic analysis you would want. They can see clearly exactly what happened. But as the story progresses, they become increasingly more hard-hearted against the idea. Who Jesus is, is maybe the most important question you're going to ever have to answer. And it's going to take you one place or it's going to take you another. How you answer it. I don't mean that you have to have the answer right now. I'm telling you, I'm just saying you cannot just not have an answer. The answer is formulating inside of you. You're either, I mean, plot yourself. I'm not saying you need to believe Jesus is the Son of God, okay? God's patient. He was patient with me. He's patient with you. I just want to know, do you plot from, he's a man, he's a prophet, he's pretty powerful, he's the Messiah, he's the, he is the Christ. Is it on that? Is it on that curve? Or is it on the other curve? Or the more you learn about Jesus, the less comfortable you become because he's pushing on your lifestyle. Jesus ends up saying in 39, listen to 39, for judgment I came into the world. His personhood is going to divide humanity. For judgment I came in the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say you see, your guilt remains.
this would be a danger. If you were to plot your, your journey with Christ, this would be a concerning profile. Jesus is a good teacher, but, you know, I kind of have my own faith. Everybody has their own internal faith. I, I would say that's a warning sign. That's a, that's a plot on this path because you're marginalizing him to the man which places him beneath your law. If you were to say things like, well, I think there's a lot of ways to get to heaven, and Jesus is just one of those ways. For judgment, he came into the world. We have to be really careful how we see him. This is what happens when Christ comes to the world. He breaks us into two. And either we, we gain sight of him and we begin to follow and worship or we become hard. In a really odd way, the people who we see day to day who are at great disadvantage, circumstantial disadvantage, are before the Lord people who have great advantage because they feel sinful and they need a Savior. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. The physician came to heal the sick. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. It's those who are circumstantially at all the advantages that have likely built a system that is telling them they're good without Jesus. Why do you think that the why do you think that Christ says of the rich man? Right? He's speaking with the rich young ruler and he says, Hey, it's easier for the camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? Because people who are in great circumstantial advantage have allowed the tenet of I am doing well because I'm good. Very likely that's crept into the sinews of their being. And he's warning them. Next week, if we remember to preach Nicodemus then, you'll hear, right, so to the rich, it's watch out because you've laid your theory of righteousness on your wealth. To the learned, you have to be born again. You've laid your theory of righteousness on your knowledge. Christ is going to come to the place where you've laid your theory of righteousness and he's going to have to say, you have to choose whether I am the Messiah, the Savior of the world or not. I am the most important question you're going to have to answer because I am the light of the world and only I give sight. We'll close with this. If you just turn to the very beginning of John, this theme actually has been passing through the whole book. The, this double-edged theme, this great gentleness and kindness of the saving Christ who would heal the blind man and also this Christ who's saying for judgment I came into this world, right? The both sides of how you deal with Christ really matters. It's, it's, it starts in the beginning of the book and it follows all the way through. 
Even the, the, the theme of light. Let me just read to you verse 4. Speaking of Christ, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? I'm going to skip to 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you, do you hear that? How you view Christ has everything to do with whether we come before the Lord or not. Look at John 3. You know, we love John 3.16. Well, there's also a 3.17 and a 3.18 and a 3.19. 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ah, yes. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. What do your circumstances say to you about God's opinion of you? I hope not much. God has come to all people because all people need God. The rich and the poor alike. May we have ears to hear this lest we be found deaf and may we have eyes to see this lest we be found blind. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your mercy and your patience not only with us but with those we love not only with those we love, but with those we know who you would have us love. Not only with those we know, but with those we do not yet know that you would call us to learn and then love. Mercy and patience, we pray. We thank you for your son, that he is our savior, that he gives sight to the blind, spiritual sight, Lord, eyes to see you, to worship you, Lord. I pray against the dominion of circumstances. The habit we form, Lord, where we levy judgment on ourselves and others based upon how life is going. Help us, Lord, only to look for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.